This is the Educational Triage Podcast. Welcome. We invite you to come along with us on an exploration of interviews, issues, and other exciting and relevant topics in education, especially alternative education. They say alternative education is a laboratory for mainstream education. Why? Well, join us every week and listen in as Christy Goodell, Hello. Philip Summers, Aloha. and I, Tony Hunt, jump in feet first to discuss issues that may affect our classes, students, communities, as well as our teaching. Please subscribe if you enjoy and find relevance in what you experience here. And if you haven't left a quick review, please do. We appreciate your candor and insights so we can improve as we move forward. Now, let's see what's on board today. And welcome back to another rousing episode of Educational Triage. And this week, I have two very special guests from the Department of Education or the Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction in the state of Washington, we have Liz Quayle. Hello, glad to be here, thank you. <laughs> and from the Department of Education, from the Department of Alternative Education, we have Annie Marges. Hello, glad to be with you. What I wanna do this week is I wanna talk to you about how similar in the differences just between states and not only the definition, but how the layout goes and the rollout of alternative education and the programs and how that's affected and maybe look at why different states are so radically different because there are even states that have um, alternative ed as a disciplinary form of education, which to me is antithetical to what education should be. But we're not going to go into that today. So um, I'm going to start with, with whoever wants to begin with. How does your state define alternative education? Go first. Um, we have a variety of alternative learnings in Washington, and it's defined by program. Alternative learning can mean alternative learning experiences, or ALEs, where instruction is provided in part or in whole away from the classroom at either a per-course opportunity at a high school or in an ALE program. Some of these students come from families who want to be more involved in their child's education. They may be students with health issues or personal passions who need flexible off-campus learning, students who need a smaller environment and more help, or who want more of a challenge and independence in their learning. Sometimes they're just looking for a safe space to learn. There are full-time alternative high schools that meet a need for students who need a different, potentially, again, more safe and supportive learning environment. We have re-engagement programs for students aged 16 to 21 who have dropped out of high school or are not expected to complete their diploma by age 21. These programs can be focused on high school diplomas, GED, college credits, and or career, skill, career skills. Our state also has Running Start college access programs for students who want a head start on their college credits or the opportunity to earn their associate's degree at the same time as their high school diploma. We have charter schools, which are limited around the state. I believe there are only about nine of them, and uh, they're limited to programs focusing 
on students that are considered uh, uh, more endangered for educational purposes. And we also have many alternative instructional practices, such as mastery-based learning, innovative schools, and project-based learning. So we have quite a few options for alternatives in Washington State. A lot of them are embedded in the prototypical schools, and many of them are their own programs or schools. Holy cow. That's, that's a huge menu. We are that, often seen as being on the forefront of alternative ed around the around the U.S. Mm-hmm. No, I just remember um, back in the late mid to late '90s and early '80s, um, knowing that Walla, because our state organization back then in Oregon had a representative from Walla, and he used to talk about all of these, and so it was mind blowing back then. But now it's grown so much more. Right. And for our listeners, WALA is the Washington Association for Learning Alternatives. Right. Thank you. And that's the state organization. But it's not part of the National Alternative Education Association. Um, No. Right. So um, now, Annie. Yeah. How do you counter with what you have? (laughs) (laughs) My my goodness. I'm, I'm. Yeah. I'm envious of all of the various ways that the Washington OSPI has um, has really been intentional about alternative learning options for students. In Oregon, conversely, um, alternative education is more defined by what it isn't than what it is. There is a definition in statute, which is very broad, and that says that alternative education program means a school or separate class group designed to best serve students' educational needs and interests and assist students in achieving the academic standards of the school district or the state. So in practice, This means uh, programs in schools that range in enrollment from a dozen students to several hundred students, programs that are tailored to students who have experienced trauma, addiction, and other mental health issues, students who want to accelerate and complete school before their cohort, students who need to work while they go to school or have family obligations, and there are many, many other ways that students can engage or reasons for students to engage in alternative education in Oregon. And in essence, Alted in Oregon recognizes that one size does not fit all and aims to meet the needs of all students. All of this to say that alternative education serves an important role within the spectrum of options in Oregon. Um, Many of Oregon's private alternative schools are created specifically to fill a gap in a local community, and they work closely with districts to provide services to students who need them. So we don't have the huge menu of options like they do in Washington, uh, but alternative education has been an important part of the picture in Oregon um, for about 30 years. Because I remember that in some aspects, Oregon was also on the forefront. They weren't quite as formed mm-hmm. as Washington was, but there were some, they made some huge, huge 
um, headway and benchmarks for alternative ed and for the students and for the community? And then did did it start to linger? Because it sounds like Washington kind of took the bull by the horns, <laughs> tamed it, and then sort of went barreling through. I know that there have been changes to how alternative education is structured in Oregon from its inception in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, for example, you know, Liz mentioned charter schools are a part of their alternative mm-hmm. sort of collection of options, um, but charter schools are separate in Oregon. Homeschooling is seen separate in Oregon. Um, and so I know that things have changed along the way. I'm not sure at what point, and honestly, I'm not sure why. I've been in this role for three and a half years, and I have gotten some uh, historical context to, to some of, uh, of just how where we started with alternative education. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know the whole story. Yeah, because I remember sitting down around my kitchen table with other people from the Oregon Association back, wow, I don't remember what year it was, but we worked on the charter school bill. Mm-hmm. And then we took it down to Salem and we testified. And back then we were embracing charter schools And so coming back into focus, um, I was surprised that homeschool, which was a part of the Alternative Ed Association, and charter schools, which started to become part of the association, were no longer there. So, wow. Yeah. Okay. I work very closely with our charter school specialist. Mm -hmm. And we both recognize that there are charter schools that look like alternative schools and there are alternative schools that look like charter schools. And some of them serve many of the same students, but structurally they are separate. And administratively. Yes. So what is the difference in funding formula for an alternative school slash program than it would be for a mainstream I'll jump in here, Liz, and then I'll pass it over to you. Um, So in Oregon, under the umbrella of alternative education, we have public alternative schools, public alternative programs, and we have private contracted alternative schools and programs. And if we're looking just at the public, the district run or ESD run schools and programs, there's no no difference in funding at all. It's all the same. Uh, where that changes is with our private alternative schools, the ones that contract with school districts. Um, statute lays out how those should be funded, and it's either 80% of the district's net operating expense per student or the actual cost of the program, whichever is less. Why? Can Let me interject on this because you and I have kind of touched yeah. on it before. What's the what's the logic behind that? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm sorry to say this. This was a statute that was passed years ago, and I we all know that students who are in alternative learning environments tend to be more uh, need more resources than students say in a mm-hmm. comprehensive traditional school setting, and yet they receive fewer 
and I'm not sure why that is. Right. I because... agree with that, Annie. We see that as well. Yeah. Um, do you have the same thing over in Washington, Liz? We have, um, what we have is we have a funding formula, uh, which we refer to as the running start formula. And mm -hmm. it's based upon an average of funding provided to prototypical, prototypical schools across the state. It can be more or less than the prototypical school receives, depending upon the size of the district and other factors. But that running start formula is the amount that is available to um, running start programs, but also to alternative learning experiences and also to re-engagement programs. So as I said, it depends upon the district size and other factors as to whether the, uh, those programs receive more or less in the way of funding from the, uh, from the prototypical schools. Uh, that is something that ch was changed in the rules about 2013. There were um, several different funding options before that, which students actually petitioned the legislatures against because it was a significant amount lower than the prototypical schools. So good for the student ambassadors who went mm -hmm. to talk with legislators about uh, funding for alternative learning experiences. Um, I would agree with Annie in that very often students who are in alternative learning experience programs or re-engagement programs need more supports, but don't necessarily receive them. Right. Because I, I did teach in one of the contract schools and we really didn't receive that much money, but because of the, um, the administration that we had, the administrator that we had who went to great lengths to find grants and money and they did all kinds of fundraisers, we were able to actually, we didn't make as much as they did as far as it being a teacher. Um, we didn't make that much, but we, we were more highly paid, but that we still were lacking in a lot of the resources, even though we were able to do quite a, quite a bit. And sometimes, um, it seems to me that if you have the right staff, you can build the community because money doesn't always translate into success. It's the faculty, it's the mean by which you are able to grow the students and use the learning and figure out what your goals are. But by the same token, it's one of the most exhausting types of labor because it's so intensive on the part of the instructors and the administrators to work with those students in so many ways um, because you never know what you're dealing with because you have so many students in trauma. You have so many students who um, you have to regain the trust of and to create a safe network with, and that's really difficult to do if everything is run down. And for many of them, it reflects on what they're used to at home and they don't see the difference and they would rather go to the big showy schools that have all the money. But 
I, w- I would like to uh, just comment that many of the students that attend the various alternatives and learning options around Washington State uh, are not considered at risk or um, traumatized students, uh, students in, undergain, uh, undergoing um, adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. Very often, their students who have full support of their parents um, have clear goals. They're moving ahead of their peers, but mm-hmm. still they need those funds in order to have an appropriate challenge, in order to be able to provide curriculum materials that can be shared um, with their family who is helping to provide some of that instruction. Um, our department has been able to also offer um, ESSER funds, elementary and secondary school emergency relief funds, to many of the alternatives so that they can um, they can move their programs past the pandemic for, um, for being able to help students wherever they are move up to where they should be. And so that has been something that we've been able to take advantage of in providing additional funds for programs around the state. So where do the majority of students with high ACEs, where would are they in the mainstream schools or? They're all over the place. Yeah, there, um, there are some in the prototypical schools and there are some in the alternative learning experience programs. The alternative high schools and re-engagement programs may have a higher number of those students. Very often oh, okay. that's the case, especially the dropout re-engagement programs where you'll find many students who are working because they need to, to support their family or because they're out on their own. And so, um, so they need that additional support for uh, super flexible learning and for those okay. mental health supports. And I want to jump in here too, as well, just to, to really underscore that within our alternative schools, whether public or the private contracted schools, I think what they do so beautifully is they meet students where they are. Yes. And most of the time they have smaller enrollment. So they'll, they have more, the administration and and teachers have more capacity to do that. Um, But I think that, uh, so in Oregon, I would say that our, the private contracted programs tend to have more students with high ACEs, tend to have more students who um, are in need of, of greater resource. Um, and, and I'll say that the, our school districts, they try to, to meet all of the needs of their students as well as they can. And sometimes, um, they're able to do that depending on the size of the district and the resources and capacity that they hold. And sometimes they really rely on these local community-based organizations who, um, who provide the, the contracted alternative programs. But that is, in my mind, one of the many reasons why we need alternative education is we need to, A, recognize, and this is something that I think was really put in sharp relief during the pandemic, we were Mm -hmm. reminded that not, you know, one size does not fit all. And we were reminded the importance of connection and the importance of relationship. And I think that 
just that connection and relationship is, is one of the many things um, that I think our alternative schools do so beautifully. Exactly. And I know people during the pandemic with the kids that they were running around and taking textbooks to the kids so that they could get their work done, doing everything possible to help those students mm-hmm. graduate or make make some kind of momentum towards graduation. And just keeping those connections with the parents and making sure that they had the food, that they had all the resources available to them as well. Um, and just checking in with. Right. Many of our many of our alternative mm-hmm. learning experience programs were already in place to provide those services because they were already providing remote learning and online learning. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it was a huge benefit to many of those families. Yes. It was a, yeah. I think more of a struggle for the prototypical schools that were trying to reinvent the wheel. Um, l- let me ask you this, speaking of um, access learning, how, how much of the learning in the alternative learning environments is done via um, sort of, I'll just kind of call it a canned computerized curriculum, sort of like Plato or Edgenuity or one of those types of programs in Washington. Don't have a percentage on that. Uh, we have uh, we have programs uh, that are online mm-hmm. approved. We do have an approval process for online school programs. Um, Those programs may be ones where they provide uh, a predetermined, a pre-approved OSPI state approved online provider Mm -hmm. curriculum. Uh, There are some programs that use just the curriculum and they modify it with their own teachers There are some programs that use the online provider curriculum and their teachers. And then there are some programs that use a blend of the two. And depending upon uh, how many students they want to attract from outside the school district, how much they want to play with that online curriculum themselves, there are three different approval levels. There are... um, programs all around the state that are just online. Um, We have some very large programs in OMAC and Spokane, in in, uh, Forks, in Federal Way. Those are our biggest online programs. And uh, and then also, there's a couple more as well. But... um, Many of the smaller programs will use a little bit of online here and there. So it's hard to say a percentage because there are still many programs that rely upon students coming into class a couple Uh of days a week um, for classes that support their coursework. And there um, there are some programs that because of the pandemic and moving toward more online learning in many of the schools around the state are maintaining that now. So we've had quite an influx of online learning program approvals because of that. I don't have an exact percentage though. Oh, okay. No, that's fine. Annie, how would you respond? Yeah. 
So um, similar to Washington, we also in the last year or so have had an increase for sure in, um, in online offerings. And some of those are, have been alternative and some of those haven't been. Um, within our public alternative schools, there are around 120. Um, and I know that some of them are, well, some of the, the, the really small ones in smaller districts, it might be a, a classroom in a high school with one instructor. And so they will lean on some of those, um, you know, learning management systems to help out. Among our private contracted programs, we have 33 of those and three of them are virtual. Um, and the rest are all brick and mortar in person. Um, some of them do have some hybrid offerings, but they are primarily um, teacher-driven instruction and not um, and not not reliant on a, on a learning system. Okay. Okay. Um, let me let me jump back really quickly because I it just kind of smacked me. Um, if we talked about the funding for how are they funded? And I know that Anna, you talked about the 80% or, um, mm -hmm. a certain portion, yeah. whichever was less, which seems really kind of nasty. But, um, I remember Liz, when I was speaking with Val Jones at Gates high school, that she had to pick one form of definition in order to have the funding that she needed. So um, how does that work in Washington? Uh, it depends upon when you spoke with her. If it was um, before 2013, there were two different funding options. Um, that was for two years until the legislation was allowed to sunset, where there was 80% funding for students who never stepped on campus and 90% funding for students who came on campus at least once a week okay. for a regular class. Um, that changed in 2013 when we moved to the running start funding ratio. So any program that has students um, having part of their instruction in whole or in part away from the classroom goes by that alternative learning experience or youth reengagement funding, which is at the running start rate. Thank you. Um, a really quick question, because Running Start is where they also receive um, instruction at the college level, at the community college. Or... Right, Running Start is, on, is only at the college. Okay. As opposed to dual credit, which um, might be a course taught. It's a course taught on the high school campus. Mm-hmm by a teacher who has received dual credit training and they're allowed to provide high school credit and college credit. Okay. That's a dual credit. Um, for Running Start, those are students who actually enroll into the college mm -hmm. while they're in their last two years of high school. Uh, they can go one more year if they're just doing graduation requirements. Um, but those are for students who are looking to um, maybe get advanced courses that are not available at their school program 
or for students who are looking to get a head start on college. It's a cost-saving program for many families where the student can get two years of college at very little cost to themselves. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's quite a benefit for, for many students in the state to do Running Start if there's a college near them. And those are generally offered through the community and technical colleges. Okay. Um, Annie, we have something that's similar. We do have dual credit, but what do we call the program in Oregon Uh, where they can take classes at, say, the community college? Yeah. So it's just dual credit. I don't don't know that I've heard it called something else. I mean, there are many different forms of accelerated learning. Dual credit is one of them. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's as advanced as what Washington has. No, I think I think that all, the pieces are there. I just don't think they're mm-hmm. there as um, consolidated. Maybe okay. <laughs> um, what about certification for teachers? What do we say a private contract school or a public school? Um, what are the rules governing who teaches in an alternative? learning environment or alternative school? Yeah. So statute in Oregon provides some flexibility for teacher licensure in the public side of things. So if a school district has a alternative school, all teachers must be licensed, but they do not, they're not required to only teach in within their endorsement. So I was endorsed as a social studies teacher at a public alternative school. I could also teach language arts. I could teach, um, you know, some maybe science and and lower level math. Um, In our private contracted programs, the statute says not all teachers need to be licensed. And how that has been interpreted over the years is we only need one. Um, In practice, though, we see most of our uh, teachers and private contracted programs are most, they're mostly licensed teachers. Okay, perfect. Liz? Um, In Washington, all certificated teachers in the alternative programs are required to have that teacher certification and endorsements in the subjects that they teach. That said, in some of the smaller programs, having teachers endorsed in all subject areas is not possible. So in those cases, local school boards are allowed to approve teachers for out-of-field assignments. Um, There are also some alternative learning experience programs that contract with community-based organizations to provide instruction in certain um, course areas uh, or to provide um, experiential opportunities for students that support their learning, but all of those are still overseen and um, overseen and assessed by a certificated teacher in the program. Wow. Okay. So I like that. I mean, both, both make perfect sense. So how do you deal with an evaluation on the alternative education programs and schools? Um, Our evaluation is limited to compliance with the state rule, um, the state requirements for the programs. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, we have um, 
We have state rules that say what needs to be in the written student learning plan for alternative learning experiences. We have what needs to be included in monthly progress reviews and what kind of weekly contact needs to happen in both ALE and in the youth re-engagement programs. There is also a face-to-face requirement in youth re-engagement programs and indicators of academic progress. So all of those are evaluated um, through a compliance process that I provide um, through our learning options department. And then, um, and then some, stu- some of the programs may also receive audits from the state auditor's office. Uh, we, when we took on the compliance from the um, audit resolution department, we turned it into a support role. And so for the past five years, we've been able to turn that into one where programs have felt very comfortable reaching out to us about questions about how they are doing in their documentation that's required for their programs. So it's, uh, it's been super positive because before they thought that if they contacted us, to ask questions, they would be put on a target list for the state auditors, and that's not the case. And I remember... Um, as far as, what's that? Oh, I was just going to say, I remember speaking with you at the Walla Conference in um, Skamania just the week before shutdown. Um, right. And you and I were talking about this and how you had, you and the others, they had so much that they had to cover so much distance, but they loved the job, the people that were doing the audits. And um, so I just wanted to throw that in there that. Right. Well, and my compliance reviews are for current active information so they can make the necessary adjustments that they need to. The state audits are provided for the previous years where they really can't change much at that point. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And then Annie, what do we do in Oregon? So in Oregon, all schools are required to adhere to our Division 22 rules. And that's basically every rule for a school in the state. And in terms of um, evaluation, that is put on the districts. So districts are supposed to be evaluating their own alternative schools and programs and those that they contract with, at least annually, is what statute says. Um, So in terms of state-level evaluation, for the public schools and programs, there um, there isn't really a process for that at this time. For our contracted, private contracted schools and programs, they have to apply and register annually. And then within that application, they have to, you know, say that, yes, we're meeting these Division 22 requirements. And then there are certain documentation that's that's required, you know, fire and safety inspections, insurance, things like that. Um, and then we see, you know, staff lists and make sure that everyone is appropriately fingerprinted and background checked and those kinds of things. But in terms of the actual programs themselves and how they're serving students, that is up to either the contracting district or the sponsoring district. I remember years ago, there was a system in that, yeah, I think it was statewide. 
and I'm trying to remember what it was called. It was an affirmation. And I know that as soon as we finish, it's going to hit me up. And, um, but it was where different people from different districts and even people from the Department of Ed would come in and they had teams who were trained by, let's say, the district um, or by the state. And they went in to evaluate and to assess and look for the work-ons, but also the good parts of a program or a school. So they were talking to parents, they were talking to teachers, they were talking to administrators, and they talked to kids and the other staff. And then they, it was a one-day process, and then they had to roll everything up into a report um, and sort of present that, and then that went off to the state. And while it may seem like a real feel-good kind of um, assessment, I think that if there are certain things, because buildings would actually ask for specifics, here's where we think that we need help. The teachers felt heard because they, I remember this one teacher, she looked at me and she said, I haven't had a new book in over 15 years. And she said, look at these, they're falling apart. Um, and so all that gets rolled up. The kids tell us these things. And so I think it provides really good feedback, not only for the building, but also for the district and for the state as well. But my question about the um, self-evaluation of a district is whether or not they, they're actually doing an assessment. I can tell you this, that I don't believe I was ever assessed except for this one form of assessment, and that happened twice in 28 years. Mm -hmm. Well, the the process you describe sounds a lot like the accreditation process, which I have been um, part of over the years mm -hmm. when I was teaching. Um, but And I know that districts also have a similar process, some districts, but that's really up to them. So um, Portland Public and other districts in the Multnomah County have a, a very robust process. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the public schools and programs, I don't see those evaluations. The only evaluations I see are for the private contracted programs who have to register annually. And each district does it differently. Um, we are, I don't, I'm not sure about Washington, but Oregon is a local control state. So Oregon, the department, so, so the state education agency, you know, we inform people on rules and statute and then districts have, you know, in some cases, a great deal of flexibility depending on, you know, what, what, what we're talking about. So, um, one of my goals was to come up with a common evaluation that really assessed um, the kinds of things that I think <laughs> it should in an alternative learning environment. You know, things like engagement, um, things like, you know, for, particularly for students uh, who maybe hadn't attended school previously for several years. And then all, and now, you know, they're in this new environment and they're going every day. You know, I think that some growth and engagement, something like that mm -hmm. is huge. And even though these students may not be graduating with their cohort, I don't think that we should downplay the tremendous amount of work that they're doing. So, so as it stands, our public alternative schools are measured by 
the same metrics as our public schools, traditional uh, okay. schools, um, which I don't think is appropriate. Um, and our pub, our private alternative schools are evaluated by districts. And again, some districts have a very intentional process that really looks at who the students are. They know what students are being served. They know what kinds of, um, are, of measures are appropriate for those students. Um, so it is happening, but at this point, there isn't, and, and, and honestly, it would, it would take legislative action for there to be that kind of evaluation process um, by the state education agency. Also, I'm the only person. Uh, right. So in my, like, I'm it. <laughs> That's quite a bit on your plate there, Annie. <laughs> You're also local control. Yeah. Um, the state auditor's office a few years ago did do a performance review of alternative learning experience programs. And they came up with quite a few anecdotal statements about ALEs, but there's not sufficient data. Um, there, there really are not sufficient data for um, identifying how programs are doing because some of them are parts of prototypical schools. Some of them are schools on their own. The reporting may or may not be done in the same ways as prototypical schools. And so many of the data are just not available. We're always constantly seeking methods for evaluating programs and identifying best practices. And honestly, there are as many different style programs in the state as there are programs. Is there a way, I'm going to toss this out there, um, is there a way that there might be some kind of funding or some kind of strong arm suggestion, I'll call it, um, and you can walk that back a little bit and not make it quite so um, so Cosa Nostra sounding, um, for programs to have one or two days where they can go out and visit another alternative program in order to see them in action and to meet with them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just in order to share best practices, in order to, um, so not everybody is reinventing the wheel. Mm -hmm. And I know we talk about state organizations, but not everybody's aware of their state organization. Not everybody's able to make those meetings. Mm -hmm. um, so I was just wondering, because even the conferences, um, you have teachers who, if they go to a conference, they have to pre-plan for days in advance, and then they have so much other work. So it, right. be it doesn't become the spa-like setting for them. <laughs> it becomes one of angst and yeah. fraught right. with more we've labor. Been doing, we've been doing more um, online mm -hmm. uh, workshops and um, sessions with programs. We work closely with the re-engagement networks. Um, we have one that's for King County. We have another one that is for college reengagement programs. Uh, we work with Leaders of Learning Alternatives, which is a group run by local um, educational service districts where they can advertise out to their ESD and um, teachers and administrators can join in on that Zoom meeting. 
Um, we work with Walla for workshops all through the fall, and those are regionally um, provided um, or virtually so that teachers can join in. Um, they have their annual conference for learning options programs in the spring, uh, late winter, early spring. And then um, our office also provides an administrator's workshop each January for ALE programs. And most recently, we've been doing that via Zoom. Is that accessible that sounds, by other? That sounds great, Liz. I'm going to, I'm moving to Washington. <laughs> I was going to say, is it, is it, would it be possible for somebody like Annie or for administrators in Oregon to be able to uh, drop in on those workshops? Absolutely. Absolutely. We've, we've long enjoyed um, uh, it whenever we can have um, uh, programs from Oregon join in on WALA conferences, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are, because so many of them are regionalized, it might not make as much sense because the rules right. are different. Mm-hmm. But um, what about- I know that just in my own personal history with WALA, that we tried to reach out to Oregon mm-hmm. many times, and, and especially when our conferences were in Vancouver, mm-hmm. there, there were always sessions provided that were for Oregon alternatives and for um, all alternatives in general, especially in providing instruction. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I know that in Oregon, we, for a variety of reasons, I think that many alternative schools and programs feel pretty isolated and they are very small and they don't have a lot of money and it's hard to get subs. And um, when I came into this role three and a half years ago, what I really wanted to do was to create this community of practice and have folks learn from each other and hear from each other. And I held monthly webinars and found that it was really difficult because people are so busy and they simply don't have the time to join an hour-long webinar. Um, I think that there is a desire to collaborate and to learn from and to learn alongside with, Um, but really, I think, pretty ingrained in the culture here. Um, and this is just, you know, anecdotal, just from what I've observed and, and when I was in Alted myself. Um, but I think that they really just have learned how to subsist by themselves. And they're so accustomed to that, that um, it's, it becomes not a chore, but it's, but I think it's, it's like this, this new way of looking at like, oh, right. No, there are other people and, and we could do this together, but um, yeah, I just think there haven't, if there are opportunities, you know, maybe they're not fully embraced, but, but for good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, on the same note though, what about people from other States? Because I know that this broadcasts all over the country and we also have other countries who are who listen into the podcast and I was just wondering if you're comfortable with that or do you think that they should be checking in with their own departments of education to find out what resources they might have there or both oh I, I think I think both, both. yeah okay. I think so I mean, okay. you know laws are so different um I've 
in addition to um, our partners up at OSPI, I've been in close contact with folks in Colorado since I've been in this role. And um, and then, you know, going to the national conference and hearing about those punitive <laughs> programs, as you mentioned early on, Tony. Um, yeah, laws are so different in every state. They really are. And, and just the, and the way that folks are talking about students and looking at students and, you know, hear still hearing people say things like those students and those programs. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Instead of our students. Exactly. And our programs. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Because they're part of our community. And, and yeah, we've, we've been able to um, take advantage of opportunities. A couple of our, uh, my colleagues in our learning options department have been able to go to the NAEA conference. Um, we're also looking at the Aurora Institute uh, coming up the end of October, which provides a lot of information for alternatives. And that one is nationwide. And then um, our state also has a mastery-based learning collaborative. And that one has uh, people coming in from um, an organization in New York City that provides mastery-based learning. And so we've been able to learn from them and they've been able to learn from us. So that's been something that we've done through the State Board of Education here. That's awesome. So it becomes collaborative, not only within the state, but also all over the nation. Absolutely. And the more sharing of ideas and strategies and programs that can support students where they are and move them forward to their goals, the better. Excellent. Thank you so much, both of you. I have one more question for each of you. Maybe it'll go to two or three more, but they're quick. And then we can wrap up. And my first question is, what made you choose education as a career path? Mm. Um, I will, I'll jump on that one. So my, I come from a long line of educators. I am one of five children. Four of us are in education. Uh, all those are all the girls the my the only brother is um is in the medical profession um and i think and i was not a good student i barely graduated high school i flunked out of college my first time and was really um certain that college wasn't for everybody and that it wasn't for me and i took five years off and i went back And I fell in love with learning and just realized, oh, right, it needed, I needed to be ready. And it wasn't that I was dumb, which I fully believed prior to that. Um, It was just that I wasn't ready. And so for me, I, my path was going to be academia. Um, But I had a teaching fellowship when I was in grad school and I taught Western Civ to a bunch of freshmen. And that's when I decided I should be a high school teacher. (laughs) Oh, that's and um, because I really recognize the need to get that critical thinking process started before college. Um, and I taught in, in a comprehensive high school for a couple of years. I was living in Florida at the time and came back to Portland and couldn't get a job at a traditional high school. There just were no jobs at that time. And that's when I landed in alternative education 
And that's when I realized that I had found my home um, because I knew that I had all of the support in the world when I was failing in school and it still didn't make any difference. <laughs> and so and I had these students with very little support, students who were basically raising themselves and, and their own children and they didn't have the supports that I did. And I wanted them to know and to see what they were capable of because I felt that so much of their experience with education and um, ways in which they were told over and over that it wasn't for them or that they were quote unquote feeling, um, that they believed that. And, and I wanted them to have a different narrative about themselves. Um, so then I was in alternative education for 10 years and then came to the Department of Education and am thrilled that I get to advocate for the programs that serve these incredible students. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you. Yeah. Liz? I agree with the advocacy 100%. Uh, I was a, a student early on, um, there where traditional ed just wasn't enough for me. I was fortunate to have a fifth grade classroom that was one of the first open classrooms where we had a menu at the beginning of the week. And when we were done with the menu, we could work on whatever we liked, but the menu was based upon our own levels. Uh, when I got to junior high and high school, I had the fortune to be in school district where we had many options and uh, was able to pick and select courses from all over the subject areas and, uh, and thrived in that. And then went to a liberal arts college in Oregon <laughs> where I was able to um, also take classes in all different departments uh, that really enriched me. Uh, when I graduated, I, um, actually went into a variety of different jobs over the next 10 years in various fields and then decided I wanted to get into education, which had been something sitting in the back of my head for quite some time. I started out in an alternative high school and worked there where they encouraged me uh, to get my teaching certification, which I did, and then moved to uh, Moved to a couple of middle schools where um, I taught multiple subject areas and landed in Port Townsend at an alternative learning experience program and was at the ALE as director, teacher, counselor, registrar, tech support, everything for the next 21 years. Um, the, uh, the biggest thing that was important to me and important to my students was a banner that we made together that said everyone must be safe. And that meant physically, emotionally, and, um, and in mental health, that safety was important. And so I had many students in the um, LGBTQIA spectrum that, that felt safe there. And it was an important place for them, students who came from bullying situations who felt safe there. And, um, and it was, it was hard to leave the students, but it was time for me to, to move to something else. Um, 
a little less stressful because of all of my roles that I had and came to OSPI. And it was interesting because when the job description came out for um, where I applied, it read like my resume. And so, (laughs) and then I had a, a friend tell me, oh, I saw this job position and you should apply for it. And it just kind of secured that that need for me to apply. So um, so I came to OSPI and uh, I'm able to work with alternative learning experience programs and re-engagement programs, and most recently into mastery-based learning programs where I get to go back to that project-based learning, place-based learning, uh, problem-based learning, student-centered, student-led learning and um, just really enjoy what I do and am able to support and advocate, as you said, Annie, for all of those programs and all of those students who need what we have to provide through non-traditional education. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the work that you both do. It really is. I mean, I I can't think of two people that I would want to work for and have on my side seriously so our now the next question is are both of you going to the national the naea conference yes and i'm presenting <gasps> oh my gosh oh well, that's one i am not but colleagues from my department are oh good because last year it was fantastic i'm not allowed to go medically so i'm not going this year but um, I know that in the spring, WALA, Washington Association of Learning Alternatives, did I say that right? Or is it Washington Alternative Learning Association? It used to be Washington Alternative Learning, <laughs> Learning Association, okay. but no, it's Washington Association for Learning, Learning Alternatives. Okay. Um, that they will have their conference in the late winter, early spring. And I know that Oregon right. is planning, um, Anna, you're planning on having a conference, and I believe that the newly forming Oregon Association for Educational Alternatives is, um, or the Oregon Alternative Education Association is going to be um, helping co-sponsor that with you. Yes. And um, that will be around March 16th. It'll be spring. Yeah, it'll be, it'll yeah. be sometime in March. Yep. Sometime in there. So is it okay if I put your contact information in the show notes? Of course. If people want to reach out. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So I want to thank both of you very, very much. Um, This was wonderful. It truly was. It was fantastic. Stick around. I got a little bit more to say. I honestly am so grateful to both of them for pointing out what the differences are between two states who have been very much aligned and working towards the same goals with students. And They want the outcomes to be very similar, um, if not the same, and that is success for students. But it's also amazing as to how many differences there are. Uh, Later on, I told Annie, I said, you know, Washington State is so evolved in their management of alternative education and, and their alignment and being able to have forthright programs. And while we used to somehow or other, uh, there was a, 
it seems as though a ball was dropped because we were going so far for quite some time and then something happened. And so Annie has been picking that up and bringing more activity and more cohesion within the alternative ed community in Oregon. And I'm questioning, what do other states, what are you doing? How is this affecting you and your state? Um, what is the level of activity? What do you know? What is the certification or the assessment process in your state? And how involved are you in your role with your program, whether you be a staff, a teacher, an administrator, a parent, or a community member? What do you know about these? And the certification process what do you know about the types of programs that are available for alternative ed and what chances and what, how do we best support our students who might need something that isn't just mainstream education, as Liz pointed out for the state of Washington, where they have a gamut of programs, not just for the students who run high on the ACEs, which is adverse childhood experience, but some of those who are doing so well and with their running start program just think about what opportunities we can give our students where are you where is your state where is your school where is your program with all of these we'd love to know so please do check in email me educationaltriage at gmail.com or post something down in the comments and then we can see. We'd love to hear from you. So, that being said, I am going to say, make sure that you subscribe, give us a review, and we will see you back next week. Bye-bye.